Chapter 3 of Edward I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Caveat. Edward I by Professor T. F. Tout. Chapter 3. Edward as a Crusader. 1268-1272. The great age of crusading had long passed away. It was no longer possible, as it had been two hundred years before, for a crusading prince to win with his sword a fair eastern province. The Latin kingdom of Jerusalem had never recovered the deadly blows inflicted upon it by Saladin. The hosts of Islam had long been united and opposed to the pious fury of the Christians, as ardent as zeal, as devoted a bravery and a far greater knowledge of the country and of the means of warfare appropriate to it. Yet the crusading impulse had by no means died away. All through the 13th century it remained the highest ideal of Christian knighthood to renounce all conflict with fellow Christians and fight the good fight of the Holy Cross against the blasphemous infidels who profaned the sepulchre of the Lord. The great military orders, whose establishments were scattered throughout Christendom, provided a constant stream of ardent and devoted recruits and kept up a very necessary permanent element in the crusading forces. The greatest of the popes, the holiest of the saints, the mightiest of the kings of the greatest age of medieval Christendom, one wearied in their efforts to keep alive the holy war. But the growing complications of Western politics kept princes at home, though the constant degeneracy of the Eastern Christians necessitated a continual stream of new pilgrims if any effectual resistance would be made to the ever-increasing aggressions of Islam. The result was that the 13th century crusades assumed a character of their own. They are no longer, as they once had been, the united effort of Western Europe. They are rather the results of individual piety and enterprise, a constant stream of petty expeditions rather than the occasional rush of a mighty army. They were seldom or never successful. All that the most ardent crusader could hope for was to discharge his personal vows or to stay for a short time the advancing flood of Islam. There is then in the abortive crusades of the age of Edward I a higher and more exalted character than in the great military promenades of an earlier age. There was no longer the prospect of an eastern kingdom to attract a selfish Beaumont, or the hopes of sharing the spoils of a mighty empire to inspire the greed of Venetian traders. It was purely a work of piety and self-sacrifice, tempered by love of adventure. Death, sickness, defeat were the common lot of the eastern pilgrim, yet the constant flow of crusaders never slackened for a day, and conscious of the futility of individual effort, the noblest minds of Christendom would look forward eagerly to the time when the great monarchs of Europe would again lay aside their feuds and unite with one accord in a pious effort to ransom the Holy Sepulchre. But the hopeful moment never came, and as time rolled on, the crusading impulse, though still affecting exalted and adventurous souls, seemed to have lost its hold on the great masses of the people. It is significant that the mendicant orders, whose great work among the poor gave them a grasp of a reality which no other class possessed, had not, as a rule, the crusading fervour of the older religious bodies. Some, at least, of them saw that there was plenty of opportunity for pious enthusiasm at home. To relieve the daily miseries of the humble toilers at their own doors was a higher call upon men of religion than the pursuit of visionary ideals beyond sea. And with the growth of wider views of nature and religion, that intense power possessed by the early Middle Ages, by bodying its faith in concrete external acts, became fainter. Many began to question whether piety might not be better employed than in the rough violence of crusading warfare. The religion of love was beginning to vie with the religion of war. 
the best and worst of motives combined to slacken crusading enthusiasms. France was now the greatest power in Christendom, and the best representative of the Christian ideals of the age. The Crusades had already been a mainly French movement, and now in their decline became more of a French movement than ever. The saintly hero who sat on the French throne was the only monarch in Christendom who had both the power and the will to lead a new great crusade. In his early manhood, St. Louis had failed miserably in his first crusade in Egypt. He was now bent on consecrating his old age by a second crusading effort. At his command, a crusade was preached throughout Europe. It seems as if the 12th century had been renewed. Edward was among the first to respond to the persistency of St. Louis. He had long been bound by the greatest ties of affection and gratitude to the great king who had gone to his father's rescue in the extremity of his fortunes, and he was not unmindful of the tie of blood that bound him to the husband of his mother's sister. Edward's own strict religious training, his own exalted personal piety, bent him strongly in the same direction. It may even be that remorse for the violence of his youth might have contributed to induce him to direct the arms that had shed so much English blood against the infidel, to slay him who was a work of piety. His keen love of adventure was no longer satisfied with the violent distractions of the tilt-yard. Anyhow, he took the cross with enthusiasm, and within the noblest and bravest of his countrymen assumed the sacred symbol. Unlike Edward, all did not fulfil their vow. Edward took the cross in 1268, but two years more elapsed before he could start for the Holy Land. During this interval, the zeal of the faithful was stirred up to undertake the crusade by wandering preachers of the two great orders of friars. But there were still some troubles at home that delayed the departure of the crusaders. Especially there was a struggle between Edward and the fierce and restless Gilbert of Gloucester, who declared he would not go on the crusade and leave his estates exposed to the devastations of the Welsh. But the main difficulty in Edward's way was a financial one. The civil war had so exhausted the country that he found it impossible to collect the funds to fit out an expedition worthy of the cause and of his rank. His father was hopelessly involved in debt, and was in no condition to incur fresh liabilities. At last, Edward was constrained to have recourse to St. Louis. In return for a large advance, Edward pledged himself to follow the French king as Duke of Aquitaine, and submit himself and his followers to the jurisdiction of his uncle. At last, in August 1270, Edward set off from Dover, travelling first to Gascony, to set in order the affairs of his duchy, and thence through the rough hill country of northern Spain, to Aguiz Mortes, near the mouth of the Rhone, when St. Louis had already sailed on his crusade. Among the French king's followers were his son, Philip, and his brother, Charles of Anjou, whom the, whom the favour of the Pope had raised to that kingdom of Sicily, which Edward's brother, Edmund, had been too weak to retain. Edward was accompanied by his gallant cousin, Henry of Alamein. At Agis Mortes, Edward learned that St. Louis had diverted his arms from Palestine to Tunis, was encamped at Carthage engaged in a fierce struggle with the Mohammedan Sultan of Tunis, whose nearness to the kingdom of Sicily made him a dangerous neighbour to Charles of Anjou, if not to the Christian world at large. Edward sailed at once over the Mediterranean, but on his arrival he found that St. Louis had died of fever, and that his son, the new king, Philip the Hardy, had been led by his politic uncle, Charles of Anjou, to conclude a truce with the infidels. The sickness that raged throughout the camp was the pretext for this inglorious surrender. But though the chiefs approved of the politic step, the mass of the pilgrim host cried hotly against the worldliness of their leaders that had betrayed the good cause. Edward fully shared their indignation. By, by God's blood, he swore, though all my fellow soldiers and countrymen desert me, I will go to Acre with Bowen, my groom, 
and keep my word and my oath to the death. Very reluctantly, he bade his little fleet of 13 ships set sail for Trapani in Sicily with a great French host. But the morning after their arrival off the Sicilian port, a fearful storm arose. The fleet anchored in the insecure roadstead of Trapani suffered terribly. For three days the tempest raged. The crusader ships were driven from their anchorage and sunk like stones by the fury of the waves. Twenty-eight ships were destroyed. In one it was believed that a thousand pilgrims went down, but the hand of God protected Edward's little squadron. It was universally regarded as a divine sanction for Edward's indignation at the unworthy peace that not a single English ship was wrecked. All night later, King Philip left Trapani, taking with him in melancholy procession the corpse of his father and brother, to which was soon added the bodies of his wife and child. With him went Henry of Almain, newly appointed as Edward's seneschal of Gascony. But a few weeks later, Henry was brutally murdered by the reckless sons of Simon de Montfort, as he was praying in a church of Vetterbo. All Christendom was terribly moved by the assassination. It showed that the fires of the Civil War were not yet extinct. Edward remained for the rest of the severe season at Trapani, whence he sailed in the early South Italian spring for the Holy Land. The Christian lordships in the Levant were reduced by this time to their slenderest proportions, though the old title still remained to testify to the great empire that had been established by the first crusaders. There was still a nominal king of Jerusalem, an offshoot of the same house of Lusagni with which Edward had been, through his grandmother's second marriage, so intimately connected. But Cyprus was the real centre of this power. On the mainland, a few coast towns, conspicuous was the great city of Acre, alone paid obedience to the king of Jerusalem. While of the numerous great feudatories, who had once supported the throne of the Godfreys and Baldwins, the united principality of Antioch and Tripoli alone remained, and had of late sustained a severe shock by the capture of Antioch in 1268 by the indefatigable Sultan Baibars, who, despite the constant threatenings of the vast swarms of Mongol barbarians from Central Asia, never lost an opportunity of turning his scimitar against the Christian colonists. But Acre, even in the days of its ruin, was no unworthy memorial of the great age of the Latin rule in the East. There was still centred the great trade between East and West, which the Crusades had opened up. There were still churches, palaces, castles, market halls, storehouses, and huge walls of defence that bore vivid testimony to the greatness of the Latins as builders and architects. It was still one of the great towns of Christendom. The keen-eyed traders of Italy, the strenuous monastic soldiers of the great military orders, the fanatical and enthusiastic pilgrims, the lax and luxurious descendants of the original Frankish settlements, still jostled each other in its narrow and crowded streets. The strange contrast of the Crusades, the superhuman virtue and the bestial vices that alike found their representatives in the strange medley that followed the crusading host, were still brilliantly depicted in the daily life of its inhabitants. But Acre was still so strong that Sultan Baibars stopped short in his career of conquest as he approached its walls, and turned his arms against Cyprus. Not till all the other outposts of eastern Christendom were overthrown would he had sailed a strong and rich merchant city. Edward, on his voyage from Sicily, first touched at Cyprus and thence sailed direct to Acre. The English chroniclers who followed his fortunes exaggerate the difficulties of the city, and even suggest it was closely besieged by the Sultan, and Baibars had ventured no further than to attack and capture some of the neighbouring castles. No sooner had Edward arrived at Acre than a formidable attack of the Mongols in northern Syria called away Biber's army, while his fleet failed in their attack on Cyprus. Edward's little band inspired the men of Acre with threats to enthusiasm, 
with the English prince at its head, the crusading army ventured on three forays, which penetrated deep into the heart of Mohammedan Palestine. But they were mere plundering expeditions and had no great influence on the fortunes of the war. Moreover, the English died off like flies from the heat and from thirst, while others perished from their intemperate use of fruit, grapes and honey. In the most successful of the forays, Edward failed to capture a Saracen tower, and Bybars exultantly rejoiced that if the Crusaders were enabled with so large a force to secure a single castle, there was but little prospect of their conquering so great a territory as the kingdom of Jerusalem. At last, the politic Charles of Anjou, author of the Truce of Tunis, sent messengers offering his mediation to bring about a peace. The Latin Christians of Syria eagerly welcomed their intervention, and their good offices induced Bybars to consent to a truce for ten years, which at least allowed Acre to carry on its commerce and rest a while before the struggle was renewed. The truce was signed in April 1272, but Edward refused to be a party to it, as in the camp at Carthage he would have no share with the unbeliever. He preferred to stand aside in proud and unreasonable isolation, while more practical politicians concluded the unworthy pact. His brother, Edmund, since 1267 Earl of Lancaster, who had joined Edward at Acre, now hurried home to England. But Edward, always accompanied by the faithful Eleanor, still tarried in Syria, hoping against hope for fresh adventures. The Sultan was disappointed at Edward's remaining at Acre, and did not scruple to send an assassin to seek his life. It was probably at Baibar's instigation that the Emir of Jaffa, one of the Sultan's great officials, now excited Edward's interest by professing an anxiety to become a Christian, and repeatedly sent to Acre an emissary who could speak French to treat with him on the matter. But the messenger was a satellite of the old man of the mountain, and versed in every diabolical art of the East. One hot evening in June 1272, it happened to be Edward's birthday, the envoy of the Emir approached his abode with an urgent message from his master. He was forthwith admitted into Edward's bedroom, and found the prince sitting on his bed, with uncovered head and clad only in a light tunic. The Mohammedan handed over a letter to Edward, and bent low as he respectfully answered his questions. He put his hand to his belt and had to draw out another letter, but instead he quickly pulled out a poisoned dagger which he aimed at Edward's heart. Edward was quick enough to ward off the blow with his arm, from which he received a deep wound, but he at once kicked down the assassin as he was threatening another blow. He then wrested the dagger from him and slew him with his own weapon. The attendants rushed in and found their master covered with blood and the murderer dead on the ground. The prince's minstrel dashed out the assassin's brains with a stool, and Edward rebuked him for striking a dead man. The master of the temple soon hurried in with precious drugs and smooth prophecies of recovery. Next day, Edward made his will. But after some days, the flesh around the wound grew black and threatening. The surgeons exchanged uneasy whispers and sadness fell on every countenance. What are you whispering about, cried Edward? Can I not be cured? Speak out and fear not. One of the doctors, an Englishman, answered, You may be cured, but only at the price of intense suffering. Edward at once put himself in that surgeon's hands and bade him do all that he thought was necessary. Thereupon the surgeon ordered Eleanor out of the room, and she was led away weeping and wailing. It is better, lady, said the bystanders, that you should weep than the whole of England. Next morning the same surgeon cut away all the blackened flesh from the prince's arm, consoling him with the promise that in fifteen days he would be able to mount his horse. From that hour Edward rapidly recovered, though his constitution was permanently enfeebled, and many years later sharp attacks of sickness were traced back by his physician to the effect of the assassin's blow. Sultan Bybars hardly believed that his enemy had escaped the well-planned assassination, but sent some of his chief counsellors to offer his congratulations. Edward received them civilly, 
But as they bowed low before him, he said in English, You pay me worship, yet you love me not. But he prudently avoided making the treacherous act a pretext for renewing the war. Alarming letters now reached Edward from home. Old King Henry wrote that his physician despaired of his prolonging his life, and urged his firstborn to return home without delay. Accordingly, Edward left Acre in the middle of August 1272, and after a voyage of seven weeks, again landed at Trapani in Sicily, where he was magnificently entertained by his uncle, Charles of Anjou. But sad news now came from England. First came the tidings of the death of his eldest son, John, a bright and beautiful boy, whom he had left behind with his uncle, King Richard. Then followed the intelligence of the death of the King of the Romans, and soon that of King Henry as well. But the news must also have come on how, on the old king's deathbed, King Edward had peacefully proclaimed, and everyone accepted with rejoicings, the long and weary years of probation were at last over. Edward, at the age of thirty-three, had at last ascended the throne that he was so brilliantly qualified to adorn. Fresh duties and responsibilities crowded upon the new king, but he never forgot that he had been a crusader, and never quite despaired of a new crusade on a grander scale with a happier result. A comrade of his pilgrimage at Acre, the holy and wise Archdeacon Theobald of Liège, had now been called to the papal throne. As he had bade farewell to Edward and his brother soldiers of the cross, he had, in the touching words of the psalmist, bound himself never to forget Jerusalem in her sorrows. On his way through Italy, Edward visited his old friend and reported to him the sad condition of the Holy Land. Gregory X, this was the name Theobald now assumed as Pope, was not unmindful of his vows and laboured with a single-minded earnestness to appease the feuds of Christendom that all Christian people might unite in a holy war. The good Pope saw his highest expectations realised when, in 1274, he presided over a general council at Lyon, which hailed for the time the schism for the Western and Eastern churches, solemnly called Europe, to arm against Islam and impose on the whole Western church the obligation of voting for six years a tenth of its revenues for the purposes of the crusade. The crusade was preached in every land in Christendom. In barbarous Finland and distant Iceland, the wandering apostles of the Holy War pressed on their hearers to the sacred work. But the good Pope died, and the fierce strife of faction again invaded the papal court. Neither would the princes of Europe set a term to their mutual jealousies to further the great work. Year after year, the hope of a great crusade became fainter. The crusading tenth was seized by temporal princes for temporal uses. Even Edward did not scruple in his necessity to lay profane hands on the sacred treasure. The Latin Christians of the Holy Land saw with dismay that the stream of armed pilgrims fell off rather than grew. The unnatural union of the Greek, Orthodox Greek and the Catholic Latin soon broke asunder. At last the Mohammedans swooped down upon their prey. In 1289, the fall of Tripoli completed the ruin of the northern principality of the Christians. In 1291, Acre itself succumbed after a fearful siege. With the fall of the great merchant city fell the last vestiges of the kingdom of Godfrey of Bouillon. Henceforth, the crusader's ambition was at best a pious wish, a hope that could not be satisfied, and the brightest visions of medieval Christendom became obscured when the Muslim ruled without a rival over the lands once hallowed by the sacred presence of the Redeemer. End of chapter 3